Thank you all for your service in playing and singing for us this morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We're going to be returning to the Gospel of Mark next week, but not before one final message to set our focus for the, for the new year. Uh, tonight, we will begin uh, our series back in Revelation. And so we'll be in Revelation 17 tonight and strongly encourage you to come uh, for that. We are right in the middle of, uh, of the, uh, the final days in the book of Revelation. Fascinating, fascinating passage that we'll look at tonight. We'll be back in the end of Mark 13 uh, next week. But this morning, I want us to look at John chapter 21 and set our focus for the, for the new year. There's a, a great blessing that comes when God gives new things, especially, especially time. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God created time. Uh, he obviously, He's eternal. God doesn't need time. So He didn't create it, obviously, for Himself. He, he created it for us, and, and He created the numbering of our days. And we're told in Scripture that that has divine purpose. Um, one of the first things that God created was, was time, and and it was the day and night cycle. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. It's in the first five verses of the, of the Bible. Creation itself is set in time. It's set in a series of days. It's, I mean, you have to do some very, uh, contorted things with the Hebrew to make Genesis indicate something other than a 24-hour cycle. God could have created it all at once, but instead He metered it out in a week, providing for us the rhythm of day and night uh, pouring into week after week after week. Times in creation. So, the beginning is rooted in creation. The future is also, uh, the beginning is rooted in time. The future is also rooted in time. Prophecy is proclaimed by utilizing time. You probably think of a number of other examples, but you think of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the seven years of tribulation, both of which we'll touch on tonight. Time is a central part of life on the earth, and no one is escaping its, it, its ticking. Over and over and over, there are references in the Bible. Life is but a vapor, it appears and then vanishes away. Number your days, teach us to number your days. For those who don't know Christ, time is moving toward a fearful encounter, a face-to-face encounter with the living God that they're not right with. But for the Christian, time is, is metered out moments of grace, and they're provided by the Lord. Time is, 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 is part of your sanctification. God has promised to sanctify us over time. The penalty of your sin is removed the very moment that you come to faith in in Christ. But then the power of sin is progressively removed in your life as you grow in holiness. You become more and more like the the Lord. You've probably seen the t-shirts or the little cards that say, Be patient. God's not finished with me me yet. And you see a little girl or whatever it might be. Well, Well, it's true. The promise is that you will be complete one day. It's, it's not to focus on your, the fact that you are incomplete. We, I, we know that very well. I, I woke up this morning 
just right in my face that I have a long way to go. The promise, though, is that you will be complete one day. First John chapter 3, verse 2 talks about this progressive sanctification. Beloved, we, now we are children of God. Right now, we are God's children. If we're, we're believers, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. That's future. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Progressive sanctification is the process of taking what we are positionally, that's in Christ, we're in Christ this morning, that's what God sees, He doesn't see you, He sees Christ and His righteousness, taking what we are positionally and what we will be ultimately, that's like Christ, and progressively making it a reality in your, in your life. In Christ now, like Christ in the future, and in between growing in that process. And time is where that is is worked out. Of all people, Christians are a people of, of hope. That means if one moment you find yourself in sin, the next you can fall on your knees and find forgiveness. That's hope, isn't it? If one day ends with failure, the next day begins with the Lord's mercies, which are new. If one year ends in wasted time, the new one begins with opportunities for usefulness. And I think that there's, there's few other passages in the New Testament that embodies this truth more than, than Jesus' encounter with Peter, or I should say Peter's encounter with Jesus, in John chapter 21. Now, we haven't been in John, so I had him read the whole chapter for you this morning to get the, cl- get the flow. But in all practical purposes, the Gospel of John ends in chapter 20. I mean, you go from the birth of Christ and the revealing of Christ, His death, burial, resurrection. He appears to the disciples, and you could close out the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter. But you have a, an entire other chapter of 25 verses that's like an epilogue. And it's to provide details about some key questions that, that have been left unanswered. And one of those questions is what happened to Peter after he denied the Lord. You remember Peter? Before John 21, we don't have any indication of Peter's restoration or what happened with Peter. All we know is that Peter denied the Lord, and, and he went away and he wept bitterly. He, he went to the tomb, he saw the Lord, he believed, he, he saw, the risen, he saw the, the risen Christ. But we don't know whether he was he ever restored, will, will he ever be used again. And the book of Acts is going to begin, and Peter's going to be the primary uh, individual. He's preaches, he preaches the sermon at Pentecost. So think about this. This is significant. In the final chapter of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the very final chapter of all of the Gospels, God wants, God wants you to see, wants me to see, how a man who had failed miserably is restored. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging. One who failed not just once but several times, one who didn't just fall into sin, but he, he outright denied the Lord publicly. And God knows that you need this truth, and even if not this morning, you will need it. We'll blow it as well, and even to the level that, that, that Peter did. You, you, remember, you, you have a New Testament. You know what to do about sin and issues in your own life and in the church. You have a New Testament because God had to give instructions to some pretty messed up people, right? I mean, think of the, the church in Corinth. 
Whenever you start looking around at your own congregation thinking, wow, we've got a long way to go. We do. But our, I don't know, do I want to say we're not Corinth? I mean, I don't want to compare us to Corinth, but the point is you, you have hope in Christ and, and, and you have the, the passages because of, because of God's grace. Can God use a person like Peter? Can God give a new start to someone who's blown it so miserably that everyone knows it? He can. And the Bible declares that your tomorrow can be different from your yesterday. And that's not just Joel Osteen stuff, okay? Don't get so cynical by all of the nonsense that's out there of people, you know, um, pumping sunshine into the darkness. The problem is not that God can make your tomorrow different from your yesterday. The problem with somebody like Joel Osteen is he says you can do it without the Bible, without God, and without doing anything about your sin. If you go to the Bible and you go to God and you deal with your sin, your tomorrow can be different from your yesterday. God clearly says that you're not beyond hope. God clearly says that He's not finished with you even this morning. Even Paul tells Timothy, let your progress be evident before all. Well, that implies if there's progress, that even when Timothy started pastoring Ephesus, he hadn't arrived yet. There's growth that that happens. Now, we're only going to look this morning at verses 15 through 23, but I had Michael read the entire passage. And this is typically called the restoration of Peter, which follows his denial. And some of you stood in the very courtyard where, where he's done that. After the resurrection, the disciples are instructed to go to Galilee and wait. And so we find Peter and six disciples by the lake... And John does not go into detail about the, the events that, that lead up to it. In verse 1, it just simply says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the sea. I think this is a fitting place. The Sea of Galilee is a fitting place for a restoral or renewal. Why didn't Jesus do this in Jerusalem? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think Galilee is a great place to restore Peter. Why? Because it's where many of the key events of, of the Lord's ministry took place. Um, Jesus walked on water there, he calmed the sea there, but it's also where God moved in a significant way in Peter's life. It's where God called Peter to ministry. It's where he saw the Lord work miracles. It's where he had even stood on the water himself at one point. It's where he saw another miraculous fishing expedition, where he didn't catch anything, and the Lord said, cast on the other side of the boat. And so you find Jesus doing that same thing here. I don't think it's a mistake that we find the Lord restoring Peter where Peter could be reminded about what the, the power that God has and what he's able to do. Peter and his disciples have been fishing. They've caught nothing. Jesus appears on the bank. And there's another miraculous catch. And John recognizes the Lord. And Peter leaps into the water and swims 300 feet to shore to see him. And upon finishing breakfast, Jesus then begins to zoom in on Peter in verse verse 15. And I want to show you how to restore undeniable devotion by refocusing on four necessities, or if you want to say it, four necessities of undeniable devotion to Christ. And the first one is found in the questions that Jesus asked Peter. The first one is, you must love him preeminently. If you would, at verse 15. It says, So when they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter had proclaimed his undying commitment to the point of death in Matthew 26, 33. You know that story well. And yet the reality was that when Peter was tested, he crumbled. He said, I will never deny you. And then he denied the Lord publicly three times. When Peter fails, he fails royally. Have you ever made a rash claim (laughs) and then failed the test? I have. I'll catch myself all the time saying something like, I will never forget. And I always think, well, I haven't forgotten yet, but I want to make sure I don't want to say I never forget. Have you ever made a rash claim like Peter did? You boldly stated, I just, I just don't know how anyone goes through life without the Lord. I don't know how anyone goes through death. I don't know how anyone goes through sickness or difficulty without the Lord and then find yourself filled with unbelief, with unbelief whenever you're tested in the same way. How about this one? God, if you get me out of this, I will never do that again. I said that many times as an unbeliever. Only to do it again. Tests are to show us what's inside of us, what's in our heart. Tests squeeze out what's already in there. It doesn't make you do anything. It reveals what's already there. And it's, it's to reveal it to us. It's, it's not for God. God doesn't need any information. He knows what you're going to do in the test. He already knows. It's designed to reveal that to you. It's designed to test you. And that's what happened with Peter. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, Peter, will you die for me now? Now that you failed and blown it and you know that, that what you need to do, he doesn't say, will you die for me, but, but do you love me? His aim for devotion is his heart, not his will. Your will follows your desire. Jesus said, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. You love others because you love God. Your will follows your desire. And that's where Jesus aims. That's where restoration begins. Living for God begins with loving God. And so Jesus asked Peter this question. It's not the great boasting of all that you will do for Christ where you'll find power to live. Undeniable devotion lies in the love that you have for your Savior. And even the weakest child can do that. I can remember one of my favorite illustrations about this comes from a pastor who told the story about his son. And he was coming home. It was an illustration of faith and love. He called home to tell his son that he would be home in about 30 minutes. And so his son went to the end of the driveway to wait for him. And the, the man got busy and he forgot. And about an hour and a half later, he remembered. He told his son he'd be home in 30 minutes. And he rushed home and he found his son waiting at the end of the, end of the driveway. And he jumped out and he, and he hugged him and he asked him, Son, have you been waiting all this time for your dad? And his son simply replied, well, yes, you, you told me you were coming. <clears throat> so I waited. I want to just say to you, it wasn't his steeled will 
that kept him there at the end of the driveway for an hour and a half, three times longer than what his dad told him it would be. It was a desire to see his father and simple faith that his father would do what he said he would do. And that doesn't take any special abilities or even that much maturity. It's love for God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your walk with the Lord was that way again? If it's not, I think you can make it far more complicated than it is. I want you to look at verse 7. It says, Therefore the disciple whom, Peter, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment, or he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. Peter didn't overthink the situation. He didn't ever think, what is God, you know, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? What will I say to him? He just dives in toward the Lord. And you should remember it was simple faith that saved you, and it is simple faith that will keep you. Now, I don't think it's a surprise that Jesus focuses Peter's attention on love. It's the first and greatest commandment. But look at what else he asks him, Peter. He doesn't focus on his will, he focuses on his heart. Peter, do you love me? But he adds something else in verse 15. Do you love me more than these? More than these. Now, the Bible doesn't specify these. Does it mean more than these other men? More than these, uh, more than these men? More than these fish? Like his occupation? But given Peter's earlier boast that he would not deny the Lord even if others denied him, I think it's, it's pretty clear that it's more than, than these, the other disciples. And so the Lord asked Peter three times. And Peter answers three times. And the words that he uses reveals that Peter knows exactly what he's asking. Look at verse 15. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my lambs. Look at verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And look, if you would, at verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, do you love me preeminently more than, than anything else? Peter says, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Two different words used. Peter, the second time, do you love me preeminently? Lord, you know I have great affection for you. Peter, do you have great affection for me? The last time Jesus uses the same word that Peter does. The Lord surely knows all things. Jesus uses agapao in the first two times. Peter answers, I phileo you. And then the Lord cuts deeper and uses Peter's term. Do you have deep affection for me? Now let me ask you a question. Was Peter's affection... In question, I don't think it was. The minute he finds out it's the Lord, he leaps out of the boat and swims to him. Peter's affection for Jesus is not in question. What is in question is the division of his heart. Love that's singular, love that's preeminent, love that's first place, love that's complete. That's the love that the Lord is, is talking about. It's a treasuring kind of love. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be, will be also. Jesus is not being mean or cruel. He's calling him to absolute devotion because he knows what Peter's going to face. And he's calling you to absolute devotion because he knows what you are going to 
to face. If your heart is divided, if you are a double-minded person, you will give in to your heart. And what will keep you doing right with joy, what will keep you from sinning is, is loving God. And you say, I want to love God. How do I... How do I do that? How do I keep myself? How do I express that love for God? I find myself in prayer many times telling the Lord, I just want to do more. I mean, in my, my heart is so full. I want to do more. I, I want to give you more. But what more could I give you? I mean, there's nothing else that I could give that would be a worthy gift. And, and I don't know what else I could, what else I could do. Well, I think the answer to that is found in the answer that Jesus gives Peter. The second necessity of undeniable devotion to Christ is to serve others sacrificially. Jesus tells Peter, he asks him, do you love me preeminently? saying, you must. And then he answers and shows him how to express that love. And he says, serve others sacrificially. Look if you would again at verse 15. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus answers and said to him, then tend my lambs. These are direct answers. Peter, do you love me primarily? Do you love me completely? Then do this, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. The first necessity is found in the question that Jesus asks. And the second is found in the Lord's answer to Peter. The object of his love is to be Christ. Do you love me? The object of our labor is then found in the feeding of the sheep. Jesus is saying love for him will manifest itself in service for others. You see what he's saying to Peter? It's not in your great boast of I will never deny you. It's in your faithful, humble service to others, day in and day out. That's how you show you love the Lord. That's how you know if you truly love God. Who will love God who have not, who you not seen if you do not love your brother that you sit beside every day or your spouse that you sleep beside? Jesus is saying, don't tell me what you will do as an evidence of your love. I will never deny you. Show me you love me by what you do for others. Don't tell me you want to go to a foreign country and witness for Christ when you don't serve in your own church. Don't tell me that you want to do great things for God when you don't even have a time where you seek the Lord's face in prayer and in the Word. You see the incongruency there? What we say, what we say we believe versus what we do. And Jesus is bringing together this gap between what Peter proclaimed and what Peter needs to do, where his true power lies, where where his true focus needs to lie. And God allowed that test for Peter to reveal to Peter and to point him in the right direction. You remember that Jesus even tells Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, and I've given permission. When you fall, and obviously rise again, strengthen the brethren. If you want to keep your heart warm in love for Christ, the key is focusing on others, not yourself. And so Jesus is taking his focus 
off of his failure and he's putting it on, on others. What do you do whenever you fail? Whenever you blow it, when you know that you have sinned in some way? Is your natural tendency not to wallow in that? Try to do penance in some way. Oh, I wish I would have never done that. I can't believe I, I did that. Oh, and you just, and you, you, you labor over and over and over with that before the Lord in, in prayer. And somehow that makes you feel better. The Bible says confess, the Bible says repent, the Bible says say the same thing about your sin that God does, but don't linger too long focusing on your, your failure or your sin. Get up and get busy focusing on others. Because that's... Even doing that can show you that your focus is in the wrong place. Where does most of your prayer life focus? On, on yourself or on others? Where you spend most of your time serving yourself or others. The Christian life is not about gaining for yourself. It's about giving of yourself. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. And when our lives get about preserving ourselves, how hard our problems are, how, how our feelings are hurt, how we've failed, then we're self-focused. And when we're self-focused, we lose the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the key to change is to start focusing on someone else's need. Care for them. And then you'll see what happens in your heart. Notice how Jesus identifies who Peter was to serve. Look at what he says. Pay attention. In verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then he said, tend my lambs. In verse 16. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, shepherd my sheep. And then in the end of verse 17, Jesus says, tend my sheep. Whose sheep are they? They're His sheep. Everything that you do to God's people is done unto Him. That's where your focus should start. You want to start serving the Lord? Focus on serving God's people right here. The verse is specific to God's sheep. Greater love, the greater love we have for God, the greater love we'll show to the church. The more completely a pastor loves God, the more he will be employed in the task of feeding the sheep. Do I love God? I ask myself that the question all the time. The answer can partly be found is, do I serve you well in teaching the Word? What Jesus says to Peter here. Do you love God? That answer can be, can be revealed by how you serve the church and the people in it. If your meter... How much I love God meter was based upon how much you give yourself to the people of God at Timberlake, where would you rank on the scale? You might not want to reveal that this morning, right? And so God says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Let me give you the third one. These last two will go much quicker. Love Him preeminently, serve Him sacrificially. And then Jesus tells Peter, follow me unreservedly. If you want a New Year's resolution, those are three good ones right there. Look if you would at verse 18. After this question and answer, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus makes a prophetic statement to Peter. I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Notice what Jesus says, when you were younger... You girded yourself, you walked wherever you wished, 
But when you're old, someone is going to bring you where you wished not to go. Verse 19 tells us specifically what that prophecy is about. It was to signify what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after he had spoken this, he said to him, he gives him an imperative command, follow me. Feed my sheep is a command. Follow me is a command. Here's how Peter's life will change if he lived this way, if he loves God preeminently, if he serves others sacrificially. Peter would no longer live as if he has rights or as if he is in control. He'll go wherever God wishes him to go for God's glory even unto death. What did Peter say that he would do? I won't die you I won't deny you even if I have to die. You see the connection? You really want faithfulness unto death? Then give up your rights and your agenda. Peter lived 30 years after this statement anticipating what was to take place and we're told that that he died boldly. Now you got to follow this. Peter begins with loving God. Then he moves to expressing that love by serving others, not in some bold statement or or some strength of your will. And then he tells him that that means that he will follow Christ. It means that no rights, no personal agenda, and continuing that to the end. Is not one of the most difficult things that you have about, uh, about living out your Christian life is not the benefits of salvation. You come and say, well, well of course I don't want to go to hell. Of course I want to go to heaven. And if that means believing on Jesus, then I'll be, that's not the, the difficult part, if you will. It's impossible without the Lord, but once that God works in your heart, is it not then, then giving up your rights? Is it not then turning loose? Is it not then following Him day in and day out? Most of the time, if you examine your, your life, you'll find there's a lot of me there. And Jesus says, He's the one that ought to be there. The Christian life is not a short sprint. It's a journey that begins at regeneration. It ends in eternity. Jesus didn't say, go make decisions. He said, go make disciples. And while it might begin with a decision, that decision then plunges you into this command, follow me. And what does it look like to follow me? It looks like to love me, Jesus says, above anything else and everything else. And it means that if you do that, your life is going to be marked by serving others, and primarily others in the church. And then you're going to continue to do that unreservedly, no matter where it takes you, even if it does take you to death. See, Peter... Peter's goal of standing firm for Christ unto death wasn't the problem. That's a good thing. In fact, your suffering may be unto death. The problem was what the resources that he was using to accomplish that. It wasn't love. It wasn't others. It's not... It's no longer your life, but Christ who lives in you. And if if you're trying to serve here and serve there without... Without grasping that, then 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 you're going to misunderstand the command. Um, Jesus illustrates this in many ways in the Gospels. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, I'm meek and lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. 
he's saying, Peter, it's not about being numbered with me. It's about loving me and doing that every day. Look at how Peter then responds in verse 20. Peter looks at John. He sees the disciple that John loves, the writer here of the gospel. And we know that because John says it's the one that leaned back at the bosom, uh, on the Lord's bosom in the supper, and said, Who is the one who betrays you? Verse 21. So Peter, seeing him, that's John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about, what about this man? And Jesus' response to Peter gives you the fourth necessity. You continue un, unswervingly. Love, serve, follow, continue. Or as Al Mohler said, the instructions for preaching. It's like what you find on the back of a shampoo bottle. Lather, rinse, repeat. Study the text, preach the text, repeat. Love the Lord, serve others in the Lord, follow the Lord, repeat. And we typically think that Peter is hearing this horrible thing, I'm going to have to die And I don't want John to get an easy road. So what about John? We don't know that for sure. Um, Maybe he's concerned about, about John. But the point Jesus makes is what happens with others is not Peter's concern. Look, if you were at verse 22, watch how Jesus brings this back to Peter. Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Or in the original, you, me, follow. (laughs) Me. That's the person who you're to focus on, Peter. That's how you follow the Lord without distraction or without comparison. Jesus says, you follow me. Don't look where you're going to end up. Follow me. Don't look at others. Follow me what he says. So I don't know about your devotion to the Lord. But I can tell you this. It's not the strength of your will in 2019 that's going to keep you at the cross. It's going to be preeminent love for the Lord. And if you want to keep your heart warm and you want to express that and you want to keep your eyes off yourself and trip up keep from tripping up over your failures or your own problems, then you're going to serve others and you're going to do that sacrificially. It's going to hurt. And in that hurting, it's going to take your eyes off of of yourself and back on Christ. And then you follow Him without reserve. You're not going to live the life by, by giving the Lord the reins and taking them back, giving the Lord the reins and taking them back, or fighting with the Lord for the reins. You follow Him. And then you continue regardless of what happens with other people, regardless of what others do or don't do, you will stand before Christ alone on the day. No one else will stand there. You, If you don't know the Lord this morning, you're not going to be able to blame your mother or your father or something someone did to you whenever you're a child or an adult. You will stand before the Lord alone and give an account. And as a Christian... You're not going to stand in judgment because Christ has already been judged for your sin. He's already paid the penalty. But when, when He meets out the rewards, when you give an account for your life and those rewards are given, 
the level of failure or what you didn't do, you're not going to be able to say, well, it was because my husband wasn't a godly man or because my church wasn't whatever or whoever because Jesus is going to point you back to these words. What is it if I let him remain till I come? You, me, follow. You, follow me. So what about it this morning? Are you a follower of the Lord? Do you know Jesus? I don't mean figuratively. I don't mean intellectually. I mean, have you repented toward God? And have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged what the Bible says about you and your sin? You're not a good person. There's nothing about you good. There's nothing that you could offer God. You, you are, you've already been weighed and you've been found wanting as we said last week. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the love wherewith He loved you, He can make you alive in Christ. He gives you hope in Him. Have you turned to Him? you turned your life over to Him? Christian, are you, are you there, but have you taken your eyes off of the prize? Have you made it overcomplicated? Maybe you this morning, you just need to dive in the water. It's the Lord, and you need to be like Peter and dive in the water and start swimming and then listen to whatever God says whenever you get on the bank. I don't know. But it's simple faith and loving Jesus that brought you to Christ, and it's what will, will keep you. And the good news is, is that in time that God's created, you have a new year to start and a new opportunity right now. And what you would say is, yes, Lord, I hear. And I obey.